Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. Welcome to Life on Mars, the podcast of Mars Space, where we discuss technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship. And tonight, or today, I don't know what people say on podcasts, we've got Jeff Duncan today. He's the CTO of Woolbox. It's a Spanish company specializing in charging stations for electric vehicles. And uh, welcome to the show, Jeff. How are you doing? Very good. Thanks very much, Alex, for uh, having me here. I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, you've got an extensive background in technology. You've worked all over the place in different industries. Seems like you all, you're the kind of person that goes exploring or kind of like, I don't know if you get bored of a certain industry, but you've been, you've been working in, in a, a lot of them and you don't seem to specialize in a certain industry. So can you give a little bit of your background? Because you lived in Macau, you lived in Gibraltar, you lived in California, uh, now it's Barcelona. So you've been all over the place. Can you give a little bit of, of a background of who you are? Sure. A lot of that, Alex, is just kind of luck. So I started my career back in California. And uh, let's just say in my 20s, my work ethic was not particularly strong. <laughs> so having, having a good time working in different tech companies pretty early on. One of the bigger ones that I worked at was at Hewlett Packard. Uh, so I started to get slightly more serious at HP and started to kind of think about actually my career a bit more uh, as opposed to having fun all the time. <laughs> and uh, or ideally trying to make both both together. So in HP, I moved into uh, into management. Uh, that and met, HP was great that way back in the in the 90s. They had a good training curriculum and so forth. So it was it was a very good way to to enter management with a lot of um, formal training, as a lot of opportunity to practice as well. And then everything kind of went sideways after that. So I had an opportunity to do the whole dot com thing back in the late 90s. And the opportunity was in internet gambling, which is a bit random and weird at the time, right? Uh, yeah. It ends up being an enormously popular thing over the years. But at the time, uh, it was really strange and weird. But it's like, this is my way into internet or into uh, doing .com. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do this. So I, I moved to San Francisco and took a job as a, a program manager coordinating activity between San Francisco and London. We had two offices at the time. And then that led to the opportunity to actually move to London, take a promotion and get into uh, a side of tech that I hadn't done before, which is technical operations. So I moved to London and started managing a technical operations team, which, of course, TechOps being a, a precursor to um, DevOps. So I thought I'd go to London for like a year, you know, goof off, have fun, go back to the States, you know, get that out of my system. And <laughs> 20 years later, I never moved back. <laughs> So it's, it's, been, it's been a great ride. Um, and like, as you said earlier, kind of moving to Macau, uh, Gibraltar, and to Spain, living in London, it's been a great sequence of opportunities. Mostly that was uh, on the internet gambling side. Um, Gibraltar was a great place in the early knots um, 10, 15 years ago for that. And then um, from there, <clears throat> did some consulting, uh, most recently moving to Barcelona about six years ago worked for a uh, adult entertainment and uh, online dating site at a company called CMP, and then moved to Wallbox about seven months ago. So kind of coming back full circle back into what I worked on at Hewlett Packard, which is working on hardware again. So it's by, by working on all these different industries, and if you, if you don't mind me asking, so what the, for our audience, some people might not know Wallbox, what does Wallbox do? 
and why were you attracted to that project? Yeah, when I working at CMP, I'd been there for about five years and starting to look for some some new challenges and new things to do. Uh, Wallbox appeared. I was contacted about it. Started taking a look at it, and I'd say there are probably three things maybe that were pretty interesting to me about it. One is I really like working with a great salesperson. I don't really consider myself a salesperson. I'm a, I'm a tech person. Kind that would be the CEO, Enrique, right? Correct. And so meeting with Enrique, I thought he was you know, a fantastic salesperson. And that's, for me, as a, as a CEO, that's such a valuable trait. Um, hmm. And I feel like such a complimentary trait to, to some of the things that I bring to the table. I'm primarily an execution guy, um, technology guy. And having that you know, very strong salesperson um, is amazing. So that was the first thing. Uh, the second thing is I, I met a lot of great people. So as I was going through the interview process, it's like, oh, I like this person. Oh, they're cool. You know, so I thought this is a place I could come and learn something and we could build something together. So that was a big plus. And then the, the third thing was that um, from a growth perspective, as I, as I began to learn about electric vehicles and the charging ecosystem and all of that, it's enormous. And it's only going one direction, which is up and to the right. So from a sense of having a place to grow, it felt like a great place to be and an opportunity to come in pretty early in that process and be one of the people that helps to shape that growth. Jeff, let's talk about the role of CTO. I'm very interested. Uh, we had a really good conversation in, in early September in Barcelona in a lovely roof, rooftop accompanied by beer. And uh, we talked at length about the way we manage our meetings and culture of meetings, right? We know yes. developers and mostly technical people, we don't really enjoy meetings that much because we like to produce stuff and we don't feel accomplished. We don't think like we we produce when we're in meetings, right? Because that's why we... We struggle being managers on the on the whole, right? And I was really interested. You seem to be very influenced by the likes of 37 Signals, for instance, which is a huge inspiration for a company like ours. I mean, there's no secret in saying that Marsbase throws a lot from from Basecamp and 37 Signals, Ruby on Rails on the whole, right? What kind? Let, let's start by defining you. What kind of a CTO are you? Whether there are like political CTOs or business oriented CTOs, hands on CTOs, what are you as a CTO like? Yeah, so just a couple of things. You, you kind of started with uh, asking about meetings and such. Um, yeah. About 12 or 13 years ago, I, I wrote my first kind of manager readme, which which was a thing you know, some years ago. And inside that, that readme, I wrote down, I like to spend 50% of my time working. I actually enjoy working, like myself, not in the meeting, just doing work, like individual contributor work. And if I don't have an opportunity to do that, I start to get uncomfortable with with my with my work I'm doing with myself. So I, I take great value from actually doing hands-on work. So even going back 12 or so years ago, I was like, okay, I'm only going to spend like no more than half my time in meetings. And as I've gone forward, I've kind of stuck with that over the years. And so as much as possible, I just don't allow more than half my time in meetings. Um, when people are becoming managers or I'm mentoring people on on tech teams or whatever. I really encourage kind of the same thing in them, like grab a few technology things that you want to hang on to and keep those, you know, make those your own as you're progressing your career. Uh, don't don't give up all of that in order to spend eight hours a day inside of meetings. So that's kind of rule number one for me is that as I as I set up my day and my agenda, 
I, I really try to interspace meetings throughout the day. Um, I don't like back-to-back meetings. Um, mm-hmm. I have all kinds of meeting pathos, so we'll, we'll share those. Yeah. Um, so I don't like doing meetings back-to-back because I like thinking time. I mean, I'm, I'm an introvert at heart. You know, I can fake the extrovert side, but really, <laughs> I, 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 just, I enjoy kind of doing stuff myself. So before and after a meeting, I'm typically thinking about what I want to accomplish in that meeting. And then I'm in the meeting and, you know, actually interacting. And then after the meeting, I'm thinking about what do I need to spin out of this meeting? What kinds of delegation? What kinds of leverage? Do I need to activate some workflows? I really value having that time right before and after the meeting because I feel like there's a much more focused output uh, as a result from that. So I basically, if people request, they look at my calendar and G Suite or whatever, and they say, oh, there's room between 10 and 11. So I'm going to slot a meeting in there. And I just say, no. <laughs> yeah. What, so what happens is that my meeting load gets pushed further and further forward down the week and perhaps into the next week because there's exceptions, but, but pretty disciplined. Once I get up to four or five hours of meetings in a day, I'm pushing into the next day or out into the next week. And I just say no. Now, now, sometimes there's obviously there's priority things that happen and I have to move somebody else and all that kind of thing because the, it's the boss wanting a meeting or, or whatever, or a key client or something. But, the, but this takes, takes a lot of discipline. And before we go into that, I'm really interested sure. in this rhythm, right? I know some people at, at I think, Strike, uh, sorry, not Strike, Stripe. Uh, people at Stripe oh. had the first work with me playbook i think it was like they hired a cpo or somebody yep. like that and <clears throat> can i introduce that culture maybe I, probably comes back from the early days of google as well because i might have read it also in one of the google books um where did you get the inspiration from and what does that document contain like it was only the meetings part or was it very detailed of hey how this is how you should address me this is how you should cc me on the emails like how exhaustive was it? Yeah. <laughs> first off, I'm fairly sure it started as the incoherent ramblings of a madman. That was probably the first pass. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to go to so many meetings, period. <laughs> that was um, it. <laughs> One letter. <laughs> yeah. It was my reaction to pushback. Um, I don't know where I originally took the inspiration from that from. I remember it was a meme, uh, and it had to be pre-2010. And I, I don't remember where I read it exactly. Right. But I thought, oh, my God, this is so efficient. So if I just write down how I like to work and just give it to people, people who are more visually or reading oriented can really benefit from that, as opposed to people that are auditory oriented who are learning you know, more from listening and talking as opposed to reading. Uh, as technologists, you know, guess what? They tend to be pretty good at reading. <laughs> and so uh, that, that's probably maybe a more effective way to communicate with some people. You know, ideally you want both kind of. And so I just started, yeah, I started writing it, just kind of rambling, you know, kind of a bunch of ideas and such. And then I've kind of stuck with it over time. When I've gone into different companies at different points, uh, I've written it, I've rewritten it, written it in a different style. I One of the first things I did when I came into Wallbox back in April of this year, that was one of the first blog articles that I wrote internally. I did two, actually. Mm-hmm. I did a culture and values document. And I did a uh, readme document. And those are the two first two contributions that I put on a small blog that I have internally in Wallbox. Just to be able to say, if you want to know more about me and we're not going to get a chance to meet for a few weeks, that here you go. Here's a bunch of stuff about me. 
Yeah, because yeah. also it doesn't really scale, right? I mean, at the beginning, I don't know how many people you join. You join Wallbox when there are already quite a lot of people. But in smaller mm-hmm. companies, you can tell the new hires, "Hey, this is the way I like to work. This is how we communicate. This is how you yeah. know how you can approach me and things like that." But as you know, a company hits scale up mode or or like hyper growth mode, then you're hiring 10, 20 people every week, and there's no possible there's no human way you can explain all of this maybe you're having like group sessions or whatever but a great way is to doing async which is something that we're going to go into a little bit later right and uh, so um in, in this sense like when you onboard new hires is this something that you have delegated to other people is this something that you send to the new hires is something that's made available in the, the i don't know internal documentation site in the company where can they find yeah, this, me, this document? Let me, let me unpack a couple of things you said there. Um, at, speaking specifically at Wallbox, we do an induction day for new hires. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of my first chance to interact with uh, new hires coming in from all different parts of the business, not just the technology team, but from, from all different departments and parts. Uh, so that's so I spent about a half an hour in that just talking generally about the tech team and what we do and such uh, at Wallbox. Then when I bring in someone new who's working directly with me or pretty nearby me, then we'll do a much more intensive induction process. So I'll actually kind of write up a few pages of here's all the things we need to talk about and people you need to meet with. And we'll spend big blocks of hours, four, eight hours over the span of a couple of days to really help jumpstart that process. When I do that induction process, one of the first things I ask them to do is when you get a chance, go read these 10 things. And inside that list is a readme that's in an internal blog in Wallbox. And uh, I don't know, it's like two, three pages long or something. And it's a it's a very shorthand way for me to give you a bunch of stuff about me so that we can, yeah, if people have questions or concerns or they have a certain style that they want to mesh against mine, it's an opportunity to surface those kinds of conversation points. How about, okay, let's circle back to what you introduced a little bit before. That's your culture of meetings, right? As, as, as I mentioned, I want to talk about this because obviously a lot of companies have undergone, undergone their, their digital transformation forced by COVID, right? But a lot of us, we were already into digital, into, digital, into being remote, into doing async years, yeah. versus sync. Yeah, right. So, and a lot of people are struggling right now because they're transitioning from sync to async, from having an office to not having an office or to having people distributed here and there. They have some countries into lockdown, some others that don't. Uh, right at the moment, right now we're recording this. It's end of October. Uh, I'm in Berlin. We're going into lockdown next week. Barcelona has been into like some kind of a curfew and uh, restaurants have been closed for a couple of weeks. So, it's a bit of a mess to organize organize people and things, right? So, in, in this sense, uh, your culture of meetings, right? How do you, how did you decide? Uh, how did you how did you come to the conclusion that you didn't want to have back to back meetings? It sounds reasonable, and it is reasonable. Like it's not healthy, right? But nobody does it. Like I've heard from very very few people. Like you, for instance, I limit the number of meetings I got per day, and. I leave that amount of buffer time in between meetings because I want to prepare the meetings, as I said. I want to have, I, I want to be able to work on the actionable items afterwards. Yeah. So, how long did it take you in your career to come to this conclusion? I think I've always just intuitively avoided meetings, if at all possible. There's some like deeply wired reflex there, like I'd rather just work. And then as I went on in my career, it became 
became more and more necessary to either drive change or, yeah, basically to, to, to do new things. There was an efficiency of bringing five or ten people or whatever together and drive change that way. So I had to choose who I was going to optimize for at different points in my career. If I'm only going to do heads down work, but the best thing for the company is for me to share those, those ideas that are coming out in my heads down work, a meeting logically makes sense. So I had to start to kind of have the two sides combat each other on uh, being heads down all the time versus actually talking to people. <laughs> and so it became... And then over time as well, I think I probably became more better and effective at, at actually having meetings and talking to people and all that and sharing these ideas and ways to drive the business forward technically. So let's talk about prior to the meeting, right? That yeah. preparation time. How long do you need? Like how much space is there is from the previous meeting to the current meeting? What do you actually do in that time? Do you write notes? Do you like review the past conversations on email? What is it? The kind of tasks that you Sure. It's, it's a mix of things, but let me, let me kind of cover a few of the main things. Um, when I'm in a meeting, I try, it's not always 100%, but I try to be 100% engaged in that meeting, like really highly turned up listening and paying attention and also trying to make contributions to it. So I'm not the multitasker. I'm like terrible at multitasking. All right. So I'm not on Slack. I'm not in my phone. I'm not doing other things. I'm really trying to be focused on you. And then also looking at the dynamics in the meeting, body language and people interacting and all this kind of thing. So I try to be very, very, very present in the meeting. So a cost for that is that a whole bunch of async communications stack up during the meeting because I'm not paying attention to them at all. So I just Correct. I won't take calls or anything during a meeting. You know, if something's on fire, someone's going to have to come in and interrupt that meeting and come grab me if they want some help with the with the firefighting. Uh, so that's one thing. In between meetings, I'm catching up on all the async communications that have stacked up. So I'm reducing the stack. <laughs> uh, that's, that's one. Of course, prepping for the meeting. Um, I use that typically an hour block between meetings, sometimes a half an hour. But usually I'd prefer at least an hour. Uh, so, I, so I'm dealing with the async comms, getting rid of those and servicing them. Prepping for meeting, that could include reading some documentation. It could be some framing some ideas. I'm thinking about how to drive change in that meeting, if, if that's kind of one of the goals of the meeting. Um, I may think about helping whoever's running the meeting, helping out with that agenda. You know, how do we focus things? What's the essence of the meeting or thing that we want to drive out of it? Um, yeah, those are probably the main things. And how about so a bit of catch up, a bit of prep, and a bit of maybe spinning out work from the previous meeting. Okay. And then, so it seems that you've got, because you're allowing this, this amount of time in between meetings, right? This buffer right. time. I've tried this in the past and <laughs> you, you have a couple, you can have a couple of approaches, right? So you either generate some sort of a template of the week and here's my available slots, kind of like yeah. using Calendly or HubSpot or whatever, or it's free will, but I'll do my best, right? It's the best effort. Like, let's say, um, cause on the first approach, you would have like every day at, you know, at 10, at 12, at 3 p.m., and at 4.30, something like that. But you only have got these slots. And if somebody can speak at these slots, there's, there's no chance. We're not taking the meeting, right? I'm sure we do exceptions. But And on the other one is like um, it you kind of build up on the first meeting of the day. If the first meeting is at 9, then you know the second will be at 11. But the next day, the first meeting will be at 10. So it's kind of like more flexible. Um, which one did you go for? Which one 
works best yeah, for I, you because I tried both of them and uh, I'm sorry, we'll go into that later, but they didn't work for me. But yeah, yeah I, what happens is that, okay, a couple things um, yeah. that are behind that. The first thing is that I don't do many recurring meetings at all because I find that it jams up my schedule. So I basically just don't confirm any recurring meetings. <laughs> There's a few yeah, exceptions. That's a good one. Yeah, I was going to go to that. I, you know, like this whole thing of like setting up recurring one-on-ones every Tuesday at 11 o'clock with one of your people that work for you. I just don't do that at all because it becomes an impossible puzzle for the whole, everybody in the business to like find times and all that kind of stuff. So I just, I just don't engage in recurring meetings at all. Uh, so I'm booking about one week ahead, more or less. So towards the end of one week, I'm building out my calendar and thinking about who I need to talk to in the following week. I try not to overbuild that. So I might be at like three, possibly four hours uh, as I'm building out those days for the following week. And then if something emerges, which, of course, it always does, I'm either pushing things out like delete and create or I put in an extra hour, work a bit later, come in a bit earlier. Um, I generally almost never come in earlier because it's <laughs> best to not talk to other human beings before about nine or 10 o'clock. Um, but I, but I'm quite comfortable adding an extra hour at the end of the day to, to service a special request or something like that. Okay. Yeah. I was going to go into exceptions, how to deal with them, because there's always, always there's this, you know, pushing back the meeting half an hour or something like that. And that will enter into your conflict zone, right? Because that. That conflicts with your with your hour of buffer time. So how do you deal with that? Do you accept them right away, or do you reschedule them? Do you put them out for a couple of days? It's a it's a priority thing. It depends. This thing that that comes up. What does it feel like priority wise? Because yeah. I've kept my schedule fairly lean, I tend to have flexibility inside there. The classic one is that I'll have two one hours blocked out with an hour in between, and someone will come into my schedule and block that hour in between. And then I'll just say no, <laughs> unless it feels high priority. And then I do some swap and I'll push something out and, and that kind of thing. I really try to be the flip side of saying no is I try to be very accommodating. So I, I will often, you know, in Google, I can just go no or I can uh, say no. And, hey, sorry, but I have some time on Thursday between four and six. Is that good for you? So I, that's this, I'm trying to be nice, right? So although I'm saying no up front to your meeting request for tomorrow, I do look at my schedule and try to help out uh, making some suggestions. Another big help too is I've, I've added a, uh, an assistant, executive assistant that's being shared across a couple of us. And so uh, as, as she and I ramp up with each other and kind of learning work behaviors and, you know, the, the four hour maximum meeting pathos, then, um, uh, She's also helping me out with that as well by moving things around and such. So between the two of us, we managed to make it work. All right. And, but it seems to me that so, so people can book you directly in your calendar. Is that the way of it? Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe. definitely. Why? I mean, maybe it's a cultural thing or in, in the company, right? It's required like that. But uh, there's two ways of doing this. Like you either allow people to book no. you directly in the calendar or my calendar is mine. You want to book me to send me an email, talk on Slack, whatever, right? So why did you opt for this kind of um, way of scheduling things in the company? Yeah, because I, I think it's valuable to be open-minded. So it's if, if people are trying to schedule time with me, I don't want the the threshold to be too high because if someone's... If someone needs help and the way that they're communicating, asking for help is by pulling me into a meeting, I'd like to I like to surface 
that that's the case inside the organization. Now, it may be, okay, sure, they, they put a meeting in. It's not going to happen that day because yeah. it's maybe too full or whatever. But it's, it's triggered something for me now. So I'm, thank you, Siri. So I'm, uh, so I'm making a note at that point that I need to talk to that person. And it's not unusual for me to then go on to Slack and say, hey, what's up? How can I help? And maybe I can take a one-hour meeting commitment down to, you know, a five or ten minute back and forth on Slack. Hooray, win, right? I just saved myself 50 minutes. So that's that can be the case sometimes. That someone's asking for help, and that's the way they do it. And actually, I can find maybe a more efficient way to help that person out than going to a meeting there for an hour or something. And how about when meetings pop up and they are of more urgency or importance than the ones you have already scheduled, right? How do you deal with that? How do you manage the expectations with the people you had already booked or they booked you? Um, what's your, you know, what's your um, way to work around these kind of things? Yeah, there's, I'll, I'll give you a specific example. This last Monday, um, given some of the uh, ramping up lockdown Uh, restrictions that are starting to appear now in Spain and, and specifically in Barcelona or Catalonia. Yeah. Uh, we, we had kind of a um, press the red button meeting uh, amongst the exec team Monday morning uh, to think about how we were going to respond to that. And it felt important. And so in that case, that wins, you know, it's just a judgment call. And then if, if I think and it's personal, if I think that meeting request is going to help move the business forward, And, oh, my God, that's that's a very subjective judgment, right, on everybody's parts. But if I feel like that's going to be something that's really important to the business or help it move forward versus whatever I had queued up maybe at the time, of course, you know, I'm going to drop, move and rearrange around that. It doesn't it doesn't happen that often. You know, as you as you kind of get into a working rhythm with the typical people that you're interacting with, uh, they, they they begin to learn your working style and so forth. They begin to recognize that. And, uh, you know, I'm doing that, I'd say, no more than four times a week, something like that. Am I shifting something around to accommodate that? What other things, what other advice have you got for running meetings? Is there something you do, like a, a maximum length of the meeting, maximum amount of people, no computers, or like a video calls, always, like video is always on on video calls? What are, the, what are like good, good practices that you recommend to people in uh, Wallbox? Yeah, my yeah, my my view, my approach in a lot of this is quite maybe counterintuitive compared to like best practices you know you'll read about inside of a book. Um, for for one thing, like there's the one-on-ones. You know, I don't do regularly scheduled one-on-ones. For me, it's a pull-based system. You like everything I read is you must have one-on-ones with all of your direct reports. So I, I don't do that at all. It's completely a pull-based system. If I feel like I need to meet with you because I'm out of alignment or I want to share some things. I will ask you to meet with you and vice versa. If you need some help or you need alignment or whatever you ask to meet with me, we might go by a month without having a one-on-one -on -one with each other. We might go two days depending upon what's going on. I find Slack is a phenomenal substitute and async communications is, a, is an amazing substitute to keep ongoing constant alignment between people or, or a group of people. Um, the other thing is that I value um, flow much more than agendas. So when I go to a meeting, I expect someone to have some idea of what they want to accomplish. And when I, when I start a meeting, if I'm the person running it, I will state that very clearly in the meeting. This is why we're here. This is what I want to take out of this. Uh, and maybe a few other details around that. 
But I try to make that really, really clear. And I expect others to have that clarity of thought as well. And I may ask them some questions to help create that clarity of thought in, a, in the meeting. But if we schedule a meeting for an hour, but we have amazing flow and there's a really interesting conversation taking place, I, for one, probably have up to an hour free after that meeting because of how I do my scheduling during the day. I, I really dislike, if we are making amazing progress in a group or one-on-one -on -one or whatever, and we're breaking through on things, there's two choices. I can pack my schedule together and be constantly shifting and rearranging and pushing out meetings, or I keep the flexibility to allow that flow to continue for probably up to an hour, because I tend to have an hour free between meetings. Uh, and I find fantastic benefit from that. So I'm not disciplined. It's not like stick to the agenda, 15 minutes, all this stuff. Um, I had a couple of people I worked with at my previous company here in Barcelona and CMP. And they're the ones that really kind of taught me this approach and the value that comes out of it. Uh, and that's I totally work that way now. I think people do themselves a disservice by like, okay, it's 11 o'clock. We're done. I'm going to leave the meeting now. It's like, okay, bye. I'm sorry you're going to miss the next part. <laughs> Yeah, and you end up running late into the next meeting anyways, because like even if it's in the same office, you still need to change the room. You need to kind of like send an email or something. Yeah. It's like you're not going to make it. It's 11 a.m., finishes one meeting, starts the other one. Like there's no time there, right? I also like the idea of not uh, stacking meetings up against one another just because you want to have that sort of the, the flow, as you mentioned, but like there's even some serendipity, right? Sometimes like a call comes in or like you're having fun with that conversation is going like really productive and you really don't want to cut it short because it's going to be detrimental to the outcome of that meeting, right? So I 100% align with that. And 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 then comes my, my next question. So you usually, um, how do you follow up on the outcomes of the meeting, right? Because you agree on something. Like it's very easy, like, uh, people decide on next steps at the end of the meeting, but uh, people are really bad at following up with these. Like nobody, maybe people take notes, but like only related to them, but not to the general scope of the meeting. So unless there is one person who's accountable for 100% of the actionable tasks defined in that meeting, a lot of things get lost there. So in the next meeting, we'll be like, oh, we talked about this. Did we? Like, oh, I think I thought I it was you. That. It was me. Um, so how do you follow up or how do you make sure yeah. that this continuity happens? Right. You mentioned earlier, like the whole phones in the meeting, no phones in the meeting, laptops, no laptops, all this stuff. The first one is that we are digital people. I feel like I'm, I'm asking you to tie your hands behind your back if you don't have some kind of digital device with you that you can interact with during the meeting. So I, I'm, I'm a note-taking maniac. So I am constantly taking notes. And I, in part, am keeping track of my to-do list. I'm also keeping track of everybody's in the meetings to-do list. So while I expect a level of independence and autonomy, especially for more senior people inside the meeting, to be grabbing things that sit within their sphere of ownership and taking those, I want to hire people and expect people to have that ethic and that work behavior. Like, I'm not your dad or mom, right? You keep track of the stuff coming in the, up in the meeting. I'm not here to, like, monitor you. That being said, I do some monitoring, <laughs> and it's almost like on a sampling basis. So I try to distill out after the meeting two, three, four interesting things that need to progress or that I need to check on or that spins out as an action item to somebody else that wasn't in the meeting. 
And pretty quickly, I'm trying to push those things out into the organization. I also have a set of notes. So when I come to the meeting a couple of weeks later, I've got two, three, four things that I'm following up on that I found to be the kind of the key interesting things inside there. And if there was no progress and no ownership on those things, and I noted down things that were supposed to progress and who was talking about it and who owned it, then that will be a fun convert. That'll be a fun value sharing conversation on why that happened. <laughs> let's let's talk about async versus sync. How many? First of all, to give context, how many people are you at Wallbox right now? Wallbox has, I think, right around three hundred people, maybe just a, just a little bit over it. The technology team is about one hundred and twenty or so now. Okay, so what's your history? What would you say is the percentage of async versus sync you do in the company right now? Uh, I have no idea, actually. Um, Wallbox has a few different cultures inside of it, um, and some of the cultures are like sync conversation, and other cultures prefer async. Of course, as technologists, yep. Wallbox isn't technology. There's a whole variety of, of different <laughs> shapes and sizes of people inside the organization, and coming from different backgrounds and skills and so forth. So as a technologist, of course, we're all pretty on board with async communications because, as you said earlier, you know, we've all used it for years and years. Uh, but certainly um, a lot of other people feel like a meeting and calling a meeting is the right way to synchronously progress change or to, to review things or whatever. And so I have no sense of that. I mean, the me and the people around me use Slack a lot because otherwise that wouldn't work well with me. <laughs> so in that sense, I think that it's probably some call it top down, lead by example, top down. You guys need to work this way. Um, probably a combination of those things. And there are other people that are forming communications islands like that around the organization that have a preference of sync versus async. As a percentage, I'd have no idea. There's, um, I know Slack has stats and I've seen, I've looked at them briefly, but I've not looked at it lately uh, to see adoption. My guess would be right at the, top, the time of COVID and forward, the first lockdown, I suspect I suspect Slack users have been up and to the right from that point on. Yeah, correct. I mean, for, like, for instance, um, for us, it's pretty clear. Uh, as a service company, we're mostly async when it comes to internal staff in the company. But then when we're working with clients, it's mostly sync, even mm. though a lot of the clients, because they're technical, they are we got clients like nine hours apart because they are in the West Coast of the U.S. We've got a client in Australia, for instance. So it's those are extremely async, right? Um, but it's not always it's not always easy. But it's pretty clear. The distinction is pretty clear, right? It's like internal stuff or with these clients, it's async. These clients, it's more sync. But in your case, it seems that you have these two cultures coexisting in the company. And there might be different departments. Let's say like maybe product is sync and technology mm -hmm. is async. How do they not clash? Like, how do, how do you make them converge and work together? Um, who gets in? <laughs> we do, and there are clashes, and there are, there are style differences for sure. Um, part, part of it is that, oof, yeah, that's a good question. I think part of it is that um, COVID forces certain behaviors. So it's yeah. going to be offline more often than it was before, especially if we enter in another lockdown and such. Part of it is how do you drive things best forward for the business overall? So if you kind of look at yourself, look at the people in the meeting and say, I need to change my behavior here, my, my preferred way of working to be different in order to progress something. 
this is especially true, like with your example earlier on um, dealing with certain clients, for example, Correct. Uh, external to yourselves. If that's the best way to move the business forward, then we give in, right? We have to in order to be able to, to advance because we're all going to be different, different styles, different approaches to things. Um, of course, as a, as a technologist, you know, like, okay, I'm going to think the async approach is right and efficient and all of that. But other people will take great value from around the table, face-to-face, you know, not virtual, real face-to-face communications. And those people are absolutely right. There's extreme value. But there's also extreme expense to doing that kind of meeting. And so it's also maybe helping people understand the cost versus the benefit of the cost intensity of synchronous communications, especially face-to-face. And, you know, uh, adding up to that, just because we are in war times, right? Ben Horowitz, we describe it as the war times. You know, there's a CEO, wartime CEO, peacetime CEO. Right now we are into war times um, without a shade of doubt. Um, people would be a little bit more pushy to be more sync, right? Because I don't know, I don't know if it's your case, but a lot of companies have been more affected by COVID and whatnot, and therefore they're tight on budget, they're running out of investment, they're not meeting their goals, their metrics are going down, or they're just like stalling, and therefore they feel like you know, oh, this is not working. Let's forget about this uh, sugar-coated startup bubbliness, and let's <laughs> let's go into. I need to be more pushy. I'll push the, the, the development team because I need to meet my marketing deadlines and my <clears throat> and my goals, right? Which might it's, might be good for the short term, but it's detrimental in the long term. How do you deal with conflict in that way? Like when when a conflict arouses just because somebody is more sync or more pushing communications or in meetings and some other you said there's another culture in Wolbox that they are not comfortable with this approach. How do you deal with that? Who intermediates? Like how do you resolve the conflict there? I think it, it really helps to hire adults might be one thing that's quite useful. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, part of it, again, I think if you really instill culturally this concept of doing what's best for the business, not for you on a Tuesday at 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, I think that helps a lot. If you can kind of keep that it's a bit cliche, but kind of this North Star concept in mind, and then you make compromises around that goal as opposed to compromises to, to each other um, to, to deal with that conflict. Um, yeah, other than that, that, that's kind of it. I don't, I don't know if there's any best practices, just kind of being an adult, um, trying to figure out what's best for the business overall and, you know, make the compromises to move the business forward. What what I like asking this question to all the, all the, all the guests we've got on these podcasts. It's like, what's the biggest fuck up you've done Usually, technological speaking, maybe maybe we can also talk about that because you're a CTO and I want to hear that one. But about about meetings and culture, like where have you fucked up? It can be in other companies, right? Not not necessarily in Woolbox. Perhaps in other companies you spend more time in. What what big fuck up you try to you know maybe you try to instill this kind of culture somewhere? It backfired on you or you know something that went really south for whatever reason because of your style of management. Can you share something about that? Yeah, I am impatient and probably one of the recurring themes. In fact, I'm doing it right now with one of the specific projects and change initiatives yeah. uh, we have moving forward. I mean, we are, although we're at probably 300 people now, we're still very, you know, there's very much of that startup mentality in place. And I'm, I'm rushing a particular project right now. 
And I actually had to kind of take a deep breath last night and I won't get into the specifics of it, but um, slow that down a bit because it involves some organizational change and moving people around between departments. And we have this phenomenal business opportunity that's right there, right in front of us. And I really, I want to jump on that, that, that business opportunity that's right there because it involves a lot of interesting engineering and building things and things that technology is good at. And uh, I had to really kind of step back last night and say, yeah, Jeff, you're, you're pushing this way too hard. You need to bring people with you on the journey more than you're doing right now. And that, that of course, is a recurring theme. I've had this in, in coaching and feedback sessions in my past in my career where I'm jumping to a conclusion and I'm not bringing people with me on the journey to that conclusion. You know, I'm sitting in my individual contributor time in my head figuring out what needs to be done, but not everybody's shared in that space. You know, not everybody's participated in that process. So I need to figure out how to externalize that thought process and, and bring people on that journey with me that I went through, maybe thinking it through a couple of days ago. So that's probably the biggest recurring error that I make right now is um, trying to, you know, maybe push something too hard or too fast and uh, take a deep breath. This is the goal. Okay, what do we need to change? Who are key people involved in that change? And bring them and make them passengers or participants inside that journey. And how about, because uh, one thing, uh, we mentioned that in the early beginning, right, of the, of the episode, is that you have been working in very different sectors, like entirely different sectors. And, but there must be this one thing you learn in one of them that you have adopted throughout your career. Like there was like a tipping point from this thing I learned in this sector, I've always been applying it. It's always worked in the rest of them. Is there something like that in your management style or the way you approach meetings and company culture? As in like perhaps when you were working in the gambling industry, right? And so this is something you learned there. Do you have applied all the way onwards or in any other industry in particular? Yeah, this is a bit hard. Just one thing that, that really flashback and popped into my mind when you said that um, in about 13 or so years ago, I was working in an online gambling company and we were having cash issues. We were about six weeks from bankruptcy, I think. Uh, so we had about six weeks of run rate in, in the bank account. <clears throat> and we were debating making some changes in our um, gambling systems that we had. And I felt like something was both difficult and inappropriate technically. And so I was being very principled. I was putting my principles first or my technical or ethical philosophy first and the business second and business survival and so forth. And I had a very, very wise CEO to me, CEO say to me, Jeff, do it or I'll find someone who will. And I thought, and that, that really stuck with me. He had other really good bits of advice. I had a great boss for a couple of years there. Mm -hmm. And that advice has really, really stuck with me. Um, kind of two aspects of it. One is um, keep the business first. Like, don't do stupid, crazy things. Don't do unethical things or whatever. Of course, you know, safety comes first and all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But the business, business, business survival needs to come first rather than, you know, this, this, this framework, you know, this box in which you live, right? So put the business first, not yourself first, um, if at all possible. 
That's the first thing. The second thing is um, recognize critical priorities. So what I didn't do at that moment was that I didn't hear the desperate circumstance that the business was in. I heard it intellectually, but I didn't really feel it. And the pressure that this, the CEO must have been under from shareholders and from everybody, right, to be in the position of not making payroll in six weeks. So if something is top priority, get on it. Don't let your framework of priorities or whatever be completely comfortable. Just wad all those up and throw them out. Because if there's something critical that's right there, get on it, right? No exceptions, nothing. Get on it. So how did you how did you, how did you evolve to be a person that understands business? Well, from 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 technical standpoint, right? A lot of CTOs there, maybe less experienced CTOs. Let's put it that way. They're more like, yeah, I want to care about the technology. I don't want to care about business. Uh, I don't want to care about fundraising for a startup. I don't want to do sales, something something like that, because I want to f focus on Technology, which is like, dude, like if there's no money coming into the company, there's not going to be technology, right? So I was that I, guy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Interestingly enough, so how did you transition to, uh, when did you accept the business is part of the equation in your life? Yeah, sure. I mean, that moment was quite a critical inflection point for me in understanding that. Um, I've been very lucky in my career. I've had these weird opportunities to go sideways where I, I probably was hired to own technology stuff. But then I've ended up being asked to go do other stuff. Underneath what I enjoy doing is building things and solving problems. And as it turns out, those two skills are pretty transcendent in a lot of different areas. Because I can go into a new market potentially. Let's say we wanted to expand in Japan, for example. So I could go into Japan and I could build things and I could solve problems from a business development perspective. Don't ask me to sell things to certain people. That's another problem. But certainly the figuring out how to build something up in that market, the skills that I've developed over time transcend technology specific. Um, so that's maybe the first thing. These sideways paths that I've had in my career have really, really helped me out in that perspective. So, for example, um, in early 2000s, in the early knots, I had an opportunity to do Asia business development for a year for a gambling company that I was working for. It was from a technology angle, but I was working in different Asian markets. Like I was in Thailand trying to develop a lottery system to sell to the Thai government, for example. And I met with the brother of Taksin Shinawatra. I don't remember his name, but he was the prime minister of Thailand. So here, here's Jeff, like a total punk, you know, uh, technology guy who's sitting, you know, in this in this banquet room talking to the brother of the prime minister trying to convince him that we should do a gambling. We, this small gambling company in Gibraltar should do a lottery system for Thailand. <laughs> so those kinds of experiences build other skills. <laughs> and how about like when there's, you know, when there's conflict between different departments, um, let's say, let's put it and not an extreme example. I think it's a, a like everyday example, right? marketing or product or sales, whatever department, they need to get hold of some of your developers, right? And yep. you want them to be focused on the core or on the mobile app or whatever app because they're like, they're, you don't want them to switch to switch um, between contexts or departments, whatever, right? So the first thing you think about is like, no, or maybe I'll look if there's somebody free. If not, I'll try to outsource this thing, whatever. But are you the kind of CTO that shields 
his developers do we focus on the core or how do you how do you avoid this hey i'll come and fetch one of your developers for a week or so and sometimes you don't have a say in it because you don't even notice right if if it's such a big company um how do you avoid these situations yeah that's that's a really tough one um and i've worked in different organizations that have different cultures over time you have to bend your approach to the culture that you walk into and then start to nudge it. Or like I was saying earlier, bring people on the journey toward moving towards a culture that you generally agree that you want to have in an organization. Yeah. Um, it is a very recurring theme in different companies that I've joined over the years. This is probably startup number seven or eight for me now, um, where I tend to come in right at that point of scale up and high growth and things are just right at the cusp of going absolutely insane, right? From a, we have so much to do. We just got a bunch of money. You know, let's get going with stuff. And and people don't really conceive how to scale that. And then anarchy ensues. That's a, that's a pretty pretty recurring theme. So a couple, couple thoughts about that. Uh, the first thing is, as an executive team or as a leadership team in the organization, you need to have overall priorities and vision. Wallbox has probably been, done a better job of that than most of the places that I've worked so far. When I, and I didn't set this up. This was something that, that was just kind of becoming present when I arrived. We do what's called uh, overall business pillars or technology or priority pillars that work across the business. So when I came in, there were a lot of different projects we wanted to do going a lot of different directions. And this pillars or key priorities process was used to say, to align the exec team and say, this is what we're going to do. That was really powerful because by having that on day one, when I walked in, I had this thing I could point to that says, I'm sorry, Mr. Marketing person or Mrs. Salesperson, we're not going to do your thing because it's not on this list. So I was able to use that to really clear a lot of the noise out and just focus us up, focus us, focus us on the high priority items and bring a lot of realism into what we could actually execute and do. So that was that was really useful. And one of the first times I've had that kind of walking in the door uh, ended up kind of creating something like that down the road. But so that was really useful. And the, and the, the executive team, a lot of the business leaders accepted having that because it was led by the, the CEO. Uh, in part, and it was a good idea too. So then, so then we got really conformant to those key business priorities. We threw out and blocked and turned off all kinds of other stuff in the organization, perhaps quite high value stuff, but nevertheless, it's not what we'd agreed to do. So a bit anti-agile in that sense. Like we we picked a list, we're executing against that list. So if you think about uh, Scrum and Kanban and so forth. We were being a little more severe about that, but not a bad idea to get things under control. So now we did that for about six months or so, and now we're just now starting to reverse it, where I've introduced now, just, just in the last probably three weeks now, I've introduced this concept of bench capacity inside the organization. This is not original. I make no claims about this, but this concept of having discretionary capacity you know, the famous example is Google's 20% time, um, which, which they no longer do now. But um, basically, the goal of that is to empower teams, people, perhaps departments as well inside the organization to have discretionary capacity to make their own decisions at a much more organic level 
to help people out across the business. So rather than taking 100% of, well, almost 100% of people's time and allocating it to these very broad, top-down, business-prioritized um, key pillars, as we're calling them, make that 80% of people allocated to those, and then 20 or 30%, whatever the, whatever the percentage should be, focused on kind of discretionary. Your example earlier, you know, someone comes over from marketing and says, hey, I need a microsite to go do something. Empower that team, that leader, that individual on the team to have their own discretion and do their own discovery process on, is that the right allocation of my time to help somebody out? Yes, if, because if we don't do that, and if we don't build that judgment uh, and capacity at increasingly um, uh, all, you know, lower levels of the business, then we're not going to be successful scaling. We have to get people that are thinking like, like business people and being able to make trade-offs and all that and have that judgment as opposed to relying on someone to tell them what the priorities are. So we're just now starting to go through that transformation now. Okay, so, but allow me to doubt that because it sounds marvelous. It sounds fantastic. It sounds like a great plan when you're on peacetime, but work time or most importantly, hyper growth, right? You're in a company going into hockey stick growth. Um, yep. And that's where a lot of people are coming into the company. They are new. They are, you're bringing senior management in that they might come with their principles and handbook that make direct conflict with what you're doing, or they're not so familiar with what you got in place. So the, the workflows and the procedures, they start to get not corrupted, but kind of like adjusted more, more fluid just because um, there's not somebody like being super strict about it all the time, right? So in hyper growth, are you still able to keep that in place or is that some wishful thinking over there and how to ensure it in hyper growth? <laughs> <I'm pretty> wishful thinking. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I mean, we're going to try it. Uh, at, at heart, I, I'm not a highly structured person. I'm, I'm much more experimental in my approach to things. So we will go through this and it is a, it is a grand experiment in some ways. Uh, my guess, and this is probably intuitively obvious, some people will thrive at doing that and others won't. And we'll have to kind of move around, you know, uh, different management styles and different leadership styles based on different kinds of groups. That's, that's going to be the most logical outcome. Some teams will thrive in that kind of environment. There's a couple key enablers to that. Um, one is like we just rebuilt a lot of our, our management and leadership layer inside our software group, for example, in Wallbox. And I thought about, in general, the kind of question that you've asked, you know, how do we scale now this software team underneath these people that we've hired? And for me, the key way of doing that was hiring to certain cultural attributes. So if I've got the culture right and the kinds of people that we've hired, so if we've properly screened, properly identified, and more or less pulling in people with certain cultural attributes, I'm kind of relaxed about it. So in other words, if we hire people that are data-driven in their thinking, then I kind of know that that team is going to be thinking about measuring themselves and thinking about outcomes and putting telemetry inside the code to extract business and technical KPIs if I've hired the person that is thinking about that kind of stuff. So number one is kind of hiring for culture and making sure that that culture is kind of consistent with what you're looking for. The second thing is that 
expect to make mistakes. <laughs> so when you bring in, when you go into hypergrowth and you're hiring lots of people, um, you're going to make mistakes in that hiring. And that, that's not necessarily a comment on the, the type or the quality of person that you've brought in. You've just made the wrong call. You, you've misunderstood the scope of the role that you that you were envisioning as part of that growth process. You've tried. You found the wrong person, not meshing with the role you you actually needed, rather than the one you thought you needed. So you have to accept that you're not going to be perfect, and that you're going to make mistakes, and that you have to be open to reshaping roles, to moving people around in the organization. Uh, if someone just can't adapt to where you need to go, then maybe that person has to exit. So you need to kind of think about all these options as, you, as you're growing because it's not going to be perfect for sure. Perfect. We got to wrap this up. And as I mentioned before, we have every guest on the podcast to share at least the technological or technical people to share the biggest tech fuck up you've ever done. <laughs> and if you can quantify it, like how much money was lost on that? It can be any okay. company you work in. Like the, wow. the, the most expensive tech fuck up you've ever done. Yeah, I have I have two, and they're both related to the to the database. Like, go ahead, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you share too. Like, we got enough time. So there's there's just like like the database is the Achilles heel of any scaling or scaled uh, internet business. Always, always, always. Uh, new new architectures and stuff address a lot of that problem, but any big legacy stack that's dependent on you know back in the day Oracle, more recently Postgres or MySQL. You do something spectacularly wrong in that environment and everything goes away at that point. So there's been two events. Uh, March, March 31st, 2015, uh, we, we miss, I'm going to say we, I'm going to take some, I'll take partial responsibility for it. Um, we, uh, I like the fact that you remember the specific day. Oh, no, I remember specific dates of certain really awful things. Great. Um, Go for it. Yeah. So we, we actually deleted the entire production database because we thought we were attached to a staging database. It's like the classic error. So I'm in an environment. This is pre-DevOps and immutable architecture and all this kind of stuff. So we thought we were attached to um, a staging database, blow that database away, run some scripts, recreate it, pretty normal stuff in test or development environment. But, but no, we were, we were attached to the production database. So delete everything. <laughs> So that was that was fun. That that led to about 14 hours of recovery, discovering you know backups that didn't work and and all that kind of stuff. Um, very very similarly, um, August 14th of 2007. Um, uh, very database again. This time Oracle. Uh, that, the other one was uh, MySQL. Uh, we managed to delete um, a customer structure to do with with addresses. And you'd think, okay, addresses, meh, not a big deal, right? Well, because of the relational dependencies that we had set up inside the application, by accidentally dropping this one table, we managed to pretty much destroy the entire capability of the database because we got rid of all the relational integrity in that process. And this is back when we were doing silly things like embedded foreign primary keys in the database and all this stuff, which we don't do that now. But certainly back in the day with Oracle, you would do that. And so, yeah, so we dropped that table and then the chaos ensued. And that was another 12 or 14 hour day to recover from that. That one had the added benefit of not having redundant disk. Um, and actually, when we were trying to recover, we lost a disk, which made it even more fun because we actually added in spare disks into the system. 
but we had never bothered to actually set up the mirroring with them. They were all there, but running cold. So we thought that we could maybe split discs and do some recovery work, but then we had disc failure while we were recovering, so that added another four or five hours. We actually ended up recovering the database from a staging server. We lost, I think, about a day's worth of data, which in a high-production, high-volume gambling site was not that great. But by the next business day, we did have everything back online, and then we spent you know, the next week or so figuring out how to recover from that. So fucking database is all I have to say about that. Uh, there's, there's been quite a lot of database fuck-ups in the previous episodes. But like, in, terms of, in terms of money, have you got any idea of like what's the uh, – like Yeah, good question. Yeah, the, both of them were between about 12 and 24 hours of, of downtime. Um, uh, the, the most, most recent example, it had to be in the tens of thousands, 40, maybe more, maybe 60,000, something like that off the top of my head. The earlier one wasn't quite as high a scale. So I'd say that was probably in the range of 20 to 30,000, something like that. So you're absolutely right. That money side and quantifying that so that you then it's a lemons and lemonade argument. You know, you had, you had the lemon, you suck the lemon for 12 or 14 hours but then you pivot that into a fantastic reason and business case to go fix a bunch of stuff. So as a technologist, I love having these controlled detonation areas where the business doesn't die, it gets hurt, but it doesn't die. And you use that and pivot that into a beautiful business case to go fix a bunch of shit that's broken. That's that's fantastic. That's a perfect way to, to end this. Uh, eternally grateful for your time, your generosity. If there's, um, I'm going to give you this minute, this last minute for you to, to speak to this camera and this mic on the podcast, on the YouTube channel. This is going to be uh, published in, in both platforms. What can we help you with? Like, uh, what do you want to share with the world? What's going on? Uh, Wallbox, what's going on in your life? Yeah, sure. Um... Barcelona, Spain, and the world is a tough place to live in right now, um, and it's, it brings a lot of challenges. Uh, I think our view at Wallbox is that we have kind of this key word that we're using in the tech team right now, which is, it's a bit cliche, but uh, we, we're just unstoppable. Like, we, COVID is not an excuse. The, the problems that come out of it and, and border closing and restricted mobility and all this stuff, we are just not going to be stopped by this. And to, to us, we see this as a competitive advantage. So if, if you want to, you that are listening to this or watching this, if you're interested in working with a company that feels like it's unstoppable during these periods of uncertainty and, and COVID and all of that, uh, we are really open-minded about remote and distributed working and all of that. And uh, we'd love to talk to you. We have lots of job openings and it would be fantastic. Jeff. Thank you very much. Alex, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. We are Mars-based, an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you? 